this whole passage is basically establishing David as a worthy king, as a mighty warrior. Now let's backtrack and look at, did I give you 7, 1 through 4? Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Sokoth, which means to, which belongs to Judah. And they can't between Sokoth and Azekah. Azekah. Soko and Azekah. And Ephes, that would be. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered in camp in the valley of Elah, who drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. With the valley between them. Then the champion came out of the army of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in his That's nine feet tall. In fact, he could almost look down on a basketball goal, so he could just stand there and pretty much dunk a basketball. This is the scene, and it's not much different other than probably these buildings, but basically this was agricultural land. In the time of David, it's in this valley. This is the Elah Valley. And this is from Azekah, one of the cities that's mentioned in that context there. So it's looking down. So one of the groups, can't remember which one was on Azekah and the other on the other, the Philistines. But here's, on a map, here's the valley. Here's Azekah, which is west of Soko. So it's this valley right in here where this battle takes place, or this, what do you call it, aligning of forces, aerial view of the Elah Valley, looking west, or from the west, so it's in this area here, and again, this is the Elah Valley, and this is Azekah over here, the other shot I showed you looked in the opposite direction, and this is from Soko, so there's this hill, so one group is... Over here, one group is on this hill. Philistines on one end. There you go again, a little closer. Hezekiah from Sokol. And in the incident, David's going to pick up a smooth stone from the Elah Brook. And if you visit, you can still find smooth stones in the same brook. And you know the story, so we don't have to read it all. I think, uh, did you read verse 40? Go ahead and read verse 40. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook, put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his slink was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And read 46. So he got it from this brook, 46. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hand, and I will strike you down, and remove your head from you. I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to birds of the sky, wild beasts of the earth. Okay, and you know the rest of the story. He kills Goliath, cuts his head off, and basically is demonstrated to be a warrior with wisdom. And again, just some more shots. Soko on the right, looking east in the Elah Valley. These would be the Judean hills, of which Jerusalem is on the top of the hills of Judea. Now, Another thing that demonstrates David's worthiness is there are many assassination attempts by Saul. Saul almost loses his mind. It, it appears that he almost goes crazy. And he attempts, he's obviously very insecure, and he attempts to assassinate 
David on at least seven different occasions. David does not retaliate. In fact, if you read the whole context, David has occasion to actually kill Saul and does not. And you see his godliness because he responds and says that, in fact, he submits to the authority of Saul. So he, even though he's anointed, he has a period of time where God is preparing him and demonstrating his worthiness. And he also trusts that it's going to be God who removes Saul. He does not have to intervene. So he trusts in God's sovereign hand to deal with Saul in his time. And during that, he experiences those seven assassination attempts, at least. And in verse 18, 10, and 11, who's got that? You got that, Linda? This is one of them. Now it came about on the next day that the spirit from God came by him and saw. And he raved in the midst of the house while David was by the heart with the same usual. And the spirit was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will kill David from the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. Okay. And there's others. There's one in. Same chapter, 25 to 27. There's one in chapter 9. There's actually several in chapter 19. In fact, you read the whole chapter, and there's several assassination attempts. He also demonstrates his worthiness in battle when he defeats the Philistines. We read those verses. Mark read those. He defeats the Amalekites. Except the verse that I gave you, Randy, 27, 7 through 12. Just start reading, and I'll stop you. We won't read all of them. And the time that came twelve, the country of the Philistines was a whole year, four months. And David and his men went up and invaded the Geshurites and the Jezreites and the Amalekites. For those nations were of old the inhabitants of the land. As you will assure, even up the land of Egypt. And David smote the land and left each man all woman alive. He took away the sheep and the oxen and the asses and the camels and the barrel and returned and came to Achish. And, and notice, that's probably far enough. Notice, he basically is fulfilling what God intended. He wiped these people out. And it provided a relative peace and stability to a kingdom that Solomon would be the beneficiary of later on. So he's laying the groundwork for a stable stable kingdom. Yes, what God intended. Right. And again, there's the background slide there. He also defeats the Jebusites and establishes what's later known as the city of David, which is this little piece right in here. And we won't look that up, but in Second Samuel 5, 1 through 5, it speaks of that, where he basically takes another Canaanite stronghold, defeats them, and this becomes his political base. That little piece there, it's not very big. That's also in the Hebrews class, those of you that are in that. It's also called Zion. Zion, city of David. This little portion in here. Now later on, they will extend Zion and the city of David to include Temple Mount, or Mount Zion. It's also called Mount Zion. And Solomon will eventually build a temple on that very site where that mosque is right now. 
You can just some monuments to David that you can see today, the citadel of David, in the city of Jerusalem, city walls. Now these are Ottoman Empire uh, constructed walls, but the city or the foundations to these date back to the time of the first century. So the city of David would be this little portion in here, and then eventually it would be extended to include Temple Mount. City of David and or Zion and or sometimes called Jerusalem. This is the Kidron Valley, Mount of Olives here. So this is to the east. This is the east wall, Temple Mount. Western wall would be right over here, which you can visit today where Jews pray on the western wall. Now this is looking north. This little strip right in here is the city of David. And obviously, Temple Mount back here, Mount of Olives, Kidron Valley. This looks in the opposite direction. In other words, this is the same Kidron Valley, except that next photograph is taken from a place over here looking in this direction, looking south. So we're looking south. So this is the city of David here. This gives you a perspective. It's up on a hill. And I'm going to show you a photograph of excavation, the date to the time of David down in here. This is the Kidron Valley. Looking at it from the Mount of Olives, City of David. See the city wall here? So this is the City of David. This is the excavation right in this area here. And there's a close-up of a stepstone structure, 10th century, that's in the time of David. And actually, even some of it's before. Just another shot, same area. And City of David would be just on the top part of that hill, if you will. So we have Saul's reign beginning in 1043. David's reign would begin 1011. Now he's anointed before that, but he doesn't begin his reign till 1011. Obviously all of these are BC. So another implication, the first implication, the kingdom is God's idea from the beginning. He predicts it in the Abrahamic covenant. And secondly, another implication is what are these features of the kingdom? And this is very, very important. Don't miss this. This is on your exam. <laughs> the features of the kingdom. If you understand these features of the kingdom, you will understand what Jesus in the New Testament is talking about when he says that he has come to establish that kingdom. Now, he was rejected as king, and he did not change the understanding of what this kingdom was all about. Jesus was not a millennialist, which I don't think is biblical. Jesus spoke of a kingdom with these features. So this is very important. What are these features? Well, number one, and this is a foundation for the kingdom. Another foundation here. As we've said, for everything else, it all begins, usually in the book of Genesis, it's rooted in the creation mandate. So the kingdom finds its roots in what God had purposed for mankind in general. And what is man to do? Subdue and rule the earth. And this is just a manifestation of man ruling in a governmental, in a national, in a way that God designed. This is an outworking of the creation mandate. 
So it includes rulership. It includes kings. And secondly, it includes a distinct nation. God intends to rule the earth through the nation of Israel. So Israel is that distinct nation. That's why he called Abraham. That's why he made the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham. That's why he brought about the Exodus to bring about these people. That's why he gave them a law that would lead to them becoming a nation. That's why the conquest, where they are now a nation in the land, God designed that that nation would not only be distinct and separate, as the law would specify, but that nation would rule the world. So the kingdom involves a distinct nation, Israel. Thirdly, that nation will have a godly king, not a king like all the other kings. So we have a contrast with Saul. David is the prototype. And all the other kings of the nation of Israel will be measured according to David. David also is the kind of the type of what? The ultimate king. Messiah is the son of David. So we have the beginnings of that in the kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. A godly king. Fourthly, and we'll see this in a moment when we look at the covenant, but there's another covenant that we'll look at. But it specifies that uh, in this kingdom there would be security and peace. Israel will be at peace with the nations. These early chapters of David, David is securing that peace by defeating and in some cases eliminating those enemies. So they will be at peace in the land. That will be a feature of the kingdom. And it's illustrated in the time of David when he establishes that and in the time of Solomon. Now there's a covenant. Turn to Second Samuel. Let's all turn to Second Samuel chapter 7. We have another covenant. What's the first covenant? Nope. No, no, no. Sorry, no, Noahic. Second covenant? Abrahamic covenant. Third covenant? Mosaic, fourth, Palestinian, two more left. Now we have a covenant that we see in Second Samuel 7. It's called the Davidic covenant. And the parties of that, we can look at it in detail, and we'll look at some of the verses. We won't look at it in great detail. But the parties are God and David and a line of descendants that descend from David. Those are the parties of the covenant. We'll look at some of the stipulations, but the essence of the stipulations will establish a father-son relationship. God is the father, David is the son, and there's a father-son relationship, and the Davidic covenant will establish this father-son relationship with those kings that descend. And they're to be like... Children in the family of God, obedient to the Father. And there's other stipulations. Some of the stipulations include discipline of kings that disobey. And we'll see outworking of these stipulations in the future history of Israel. It'll be centered in Jerusalem, is another stipulation of the covenant. That'll be the political center of the kingdom, Jerusalem. The signing 
indicates that it's an unconditional covenant. Now, there's a few conditional aspects that pertain to the individual kings, but the essence of the Davidic covenant, it's unconditional. That means that God is going to fulfill the ultimate aspect of this Davidic covenant, which is an ultimate king. God is going to bring that Messiah who will be the king, no matter what Israel does. In fact, Israel is going to lose the kingdom. Israel is going to go into captivity. Israel is going to be destroyed. But God is going to fulfill the kingdom because it's unconditional. And the sign of the covenant, it's not real clear, but some scholars believe that it's that dynastic line that in fact follows David. And just a review of all of the covenant, we saw the Noahic, we talked about it, it's unconditional. We saw the Abrahamic, which is also unconditional. And the Abrahamic has the three aspects, it has the seed, it has the land, it has the blessing aspect. We also have the Mosaic Covenant, which is conditional, highly conditional. We've gone over that over and over. The land aspect of the Abrahamic Covenant is also within the Mosaic Covenant, so there's conditional aspects to the land aspect. We call that the Palestinian Covenant. And now we are looking at the seed aspect, in other words, the descendant aspects, and the descendant aspects is the Davidic covenant, which specified kings as descendants within the line of David. And just to fill this out, later on there will be a new covenant which expands the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Let's take a look at this Davidic covenant, and uh, let's go ahead and read some portions of it, starting in verse 10. I think it's your turn, Connie. 10, just read through 12, first of all. Plant them so that no longer will they be disturbed. In other words, they will be a secure kingdom. Keep reading. So Okay, so he's going to establish a house that is secure. That was partially fulfilled in David's time. Mackenzie, read 13. Okay, so it specifies a secure kingdom, partially fulfilled under David, partially fulfilled within the reign of Solomon. It also includes a temple, a house, where God will dwell. That's verse 13. Holland 14, you want to read 14? I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. That's good, 14. So it's a father-son relationship that will include discipline. Individual kings will be disciplined. And the nation will suffer consequences as well. 15 and 16, Mark. And my loving kindness shall not depart from you as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay, so there's the unconditional aspect. Davidic covenant is unconditional. That 
kingdom, even though it will be destroyed, it's not going to be totally obliterated. See that in that verse there? And read the rest of 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, no, no Nathan spoke. So, Nathan spoke to David. Okay, and it'll be centered in Jerusalem. And eventually, uh, let's read, uh, Linda, read verse 19. And yet, this was the in other words, the things relating to David, these are insignificant in comparison to what he's ultimately talking about in the Davidic covenant. Distant future. And this is the castle of man, O Lord God. What? Keep reading. Again, what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. For the sake of your word, according to your own heart, you have done all these things that your servant know. For this reason, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you. There is no God besides you. Okay. Okay, and in verse 19, he's speaking of a distant time of a future king that we often refer to as Messiah. That's the heart and that's the essence of the Davidic covenant. It's going to include a secure kingdom. It's going to include a temple. There's going to be a father-son relationship. Those kings in that father-son relationship will be chastened when they're disobedient, unfaithful. But ultimately, it is unconditional. It doesn't depend on the kings. Centered in Jerusalem it'll include a future Messiah. And there's a few other less important aspects to it, but that's the essence of it. Would did David know that the future Messiah? I mean, how does that interpret? Verse 19, he understood that this pertains to a future period. That's why we read verse 19. So on our foundations for the kingdom, it's rooted in the creation mandate. It's involving a distinct nation. It includes a godly king... Fourthly, there's that security and peace aspect that was part of the Davidic covenant. And it's all guaranteed. All of this is guaranteed by covenant. And what have we we've been saying about covenants? They are what? They're contracts. They're contracts that are what? Enforceable, legally binding. They specify behavior. In other words, God is going to do certain things. So it's guaranteed by a covenant. And that covenant is the Davidic covenant. See how important covenants are? And essentially, this Davidic covenant specifies the rest of world history. When Jesus came, he came preaching what? The kingdom of God. He offered the kingdom to the nation of Israel. He was Israel's king. But because he was rejected, the kingdom has been delayed. And from our perspective, at least 2,000 years. But because that covenant guarantees and it's unconditional, we are certain that that future kingdom will have all of these aspects. And there's some more aspects we'll get to in a moment. 
So David leaves the scene, David dies, and there's actually a tomb in Jerusalem. David's tomb, there's the inside, David's tomb. And in 1 Kings 2, 10 through 12, we have a record of his death. And that moves us to Solomon. And 1 Kings 1 through 11 deals with Solomon, the son of David. So Solomon is in the line of David, of these Davidic kings. And again, here's the city of David that, that Solomon will extend into Temple Mount. And David desired to build a temple, but God told him that he would not. But instead, his son would build a temple, and much of 1 Kings 1-11 through 11 deals with the building of that temple and the raising up of uh, of Solomon. And we won't look at too many verses with Solomon, but there's Temple Mount, quite impressive, and a reconstruction. If you visit Jerusalem, you can see a model of first century Jerusalem, and archaeologists believe it's very, very accurate in terms of what we know archaeologically. Quite impressive structure. And this is a model, uh, this is about at least four, four to five feet tall, just to give you an idea how big the scale of that model is. This will also give you an idea of the scale. This is a staircase here, an actual staircase. The model kind of ends right here. So you can go up on this area and look down and observe. Actually, they moved it. It's no longer on this site. They moved it to a, a, another another site. Uh, when I took these photographs, it was at, at uh, I can't remember, one of the hotels down in Jerusalem. Another shot, primarily at Temple Mount. So Solomon, now, now this is Herod's temple. In other words, this is first century temple. So this is not a model of Solomon's, but it would have been on the same site. But it was quite impressive. It was perhaps as impressive as the first century Herodian temple. And again, to give you a scale, that's a walkway railing. Quite impressive. That's present-day Temple Mount, so it would have been located right where the Dome of the Rock is, and the future temple will be on that same site. There will be a future temple. There'll be a tribulation temple, and there'll also be a millennial temple. This is from the Mount of Olives, so we're looking west. And two other items on your foundations for a kingdom. Temple presence of God. God will be present in the temple. There'll be worship. Seventh, great blessing under Solomon. There'll be great blessings in the kingdom. And we see that illustrated by Solomon. Number eight, Israel is intended to be a missionary nation to the nations. It's God's design. So he has them ruling... But they are to rule as missionaries, the kingdom of priests. That's God's design. Let's look at some passages relating to the temple and the presence of God. You want to do First Kings 8. Now, this is on the occasion of the dedication of the temple. And Loretta, you also want to do First Kings 8. You got it? And let's do First Kings 4, Connie. First uh, Kings ten, and also First Kings ten, First uh, Kings nine, Mark. 
Okay, first of all, First uh, Kings 8, 10, and 11. Solomon builds and dedicates the temple. And it came to pass, when the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Okay, so this is after the dedication that the Lord chose to manifest his presence in the temple in a very visible way. Now, God is omnipresent, and that means that he is everywhere at the same time without being diminished anywhere, but in a special way, he didn't localize himself in the temple, but he manifested himself. In other words, he made himself visible and present in the temple, but he remains omnipresent. In fact, Solomon himself acknowledges that. He acknowledges this temple cannot contain the omnipresent God. You want to also read 22 through 24. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel. He put his hands before him, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above before who keeps covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you. Did you notice that? Who keeps covenant? Recurring theme. Go ahead. Who has kept with your servant David, my father, that he promised him. You spoke also with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand as it is listed. Okay. Fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in terms of the temple. And you want to read 27, same chapter, chapter 8, verse 27. But will God dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and his supplications. Okay. Solomon understood the omnipresence of God. Heaven can't contain God because he's omnipresent. So how can this little house, this little tiny little structure contain God? Yet God chose to manifest his presence there. The blessing aspect, let's look at some passages it's unbelievable the the blessing that was experienced by the nation under Solomon. And you have that one, Connie, First Kings 4, verse 20, and just start reading. You can read all the way to 30, because it's got a lot in there, but just read a few verses in there. Okay, so lots of seed, lots of inhabitants. Keep reading. Read a few of it, yeah. And you look, if you look at the detail there, this is abundance. This is wealth. But notice there's peace, there's prosperity, there's there's happiness. So there's general blessing. Now more specific economic, that's chapter 10. Mackenzie, do you want to do 10, 14 and read on in a few verses in there? Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666,000 gold. Talents, and a talent I think was close to 100 pounds if I remember right. This is tremendous wealth that came in. Keep reading. 
Besides that which came from the explorers, from the business of the merchants, of the merchants and from all the kings of the West, and from the governors of the land. So gold is coming from all over the world. Wealth. Keep reading. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold, three minus of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the worst of them. So even the shields that they would use in battle had gold, lots of gold. Skip to verse 27 and 29, Holland. 27 through 29, same chapter. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses is from Egypt and Hugh, and the king's traders received them from the price. Okay, so silver... So common, just like stones. All kinds of building materials, cedars, horses, great abundance. And we can spend a lot of time just analyzing just the details of the wealth there and convert it even to present day. Did you have a comment there? Wasn't it against the commandment to accumulate Part of it was, but it, it shows just the wealth. Yeah. Okay. And did you get to 29? A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse or iron. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Okay. Uh, Hittites were up and near Syria, Turkey, that area. No, they're a different, different group. Verse 26, military might. Chapter 9, did you have that one, Mark? 26 through 28. This is trade, lots of trade, ships. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships in Ezra-Geber, which is near Eleth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors into the sea along with the service of Solomon. They went on off here and took 420 talents of gold from there. Okay. Again, just emphasizing the, the great blessing under Solomon. I'm stressing this because everything's going to change after Solomon. And we're going to see next time kind of a downward smile. We're going to see the cycles of sin again. As great a king as David was, and to some extent as great a king as Solomon was, there's still sinners. And that's fatal flaw throughout Scripture. And they are to be a missionary nation. First Kings four. Linda, do you want to read First Kings four twenty nine through at least start with twenty nine, then skip to thirty four. Twenty nine four twenty nine. Read a couple of verses. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Keep reading. Um, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the beast and all the wisdom. He was wiser than all men, and he committed Israel, Haman, Calcol, Dar, the sons of Manol, and fame was known in all the surrounding nations. Fame was known in all the surrounding nations. Influence. Keep reading. Okay. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs. Were one thousand five. Um, he spoke of trees 
Read the 34. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is Lebanon, even the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and things. He is a scientist, probably a mathematician. Man, men came from all peaks to hear the wisdom of Solomon, from all the peaks of the earth who had heard. Okay, verse 34. People came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And I'm going to talk about wisdom and what people came to hear. They came to hear, what's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. So it began with spiritual things. That's just one verse. Uh, we could look at chapter 10. We won't, but you're familiar with the Queen of Sheba that comes, who might have been, I gave you when we were talking about the pharaohs and the uh, Egyptian culture, could have been that female Pharaoh, Hatshepsut. Some believe it fits the chronology of the revised chronology. But she came and she was uh, amazed by the wealth and the wisdom of Solomon. And that was the intent, that uh, Israel would be an example of God's blessing and what it means to have a relationship to the one true God. So the kingdom includes a missionary nation, and it's to the Gentile nations. So that's your foundation for a kingdom. So under Solomon, we could summarize his rulership. There are some aspects of Solomon that indicate his greatness. His wisdom is emphasized. And he's greatly praised for praying for wisdom rather than for wealth. And because he prayed for wisdom, God gave him both. He's also best known for the dedication of the temple. And this is the golden era of Israel, is under Solomon's reign. But, being a sinner, we also have his weakness. And we could summarize his weakness in, as Randy is pointing out earlier, he is violating some aspects of what was specified in terms of what kings are to do. And some of the things that he did were violations in terms of the women. He was not to intermarry, and he made alliances with Gentile nations by marrying daughters of other kings. These women introduced idolatry into the court of the king. He also had a problem with that wealth in terms of indulgence, and we see that from some of his writings, some of his wisdom and particularly the book of Ecclesiastes, which is attributed to him. So he had a problem with four W's, women, wine, wealth, which led to other excesses, and that led to a worldliness, four W's. Women in this order, wine, wealth, and the world. We don't have those problems today, though, right? Kingdom of David and Solomon, this map just kind of... Gives you the boundaries. This is actually the actual boundary that stops over here, down to Ezion Geber here, and most of the land of Israel, but it didn't include all of it. And certainly this was influenced, but not occupied land all the way to the Euphrates. God promised all of this land that included this coastland and further even east. Never occupied by the nation of Israel. This is the greatest extent of the occupation of Israel, of Israel was under the Solomonic rule. So we have Saul's reign, we have David's reign, we have Solomon's reign, 
He begins in about 971 B.C. To complete our foundation for liberty, we said we are created free. We're not under bondage. We were not created in bondage. First sin introduced a loss of liberty, a great loss. So we don't lose it as a result of culture or things that man does. It's distorted by selfishness. Liberty is not by God. We saw that at Babel. We see government oppression when we uh, see the outworking of governments in the nations. It's not necessarily laws per se. We saw under Sinai that liberty, in fact, the law was designed to maintain liberty, to protect liberty. So the word or the law is not legalism. It's designed to be a positive Sixthly, it's lost by apostasy. That's illustrated by the period of the judges, where the the nation went into apostasy. And when they went into apostasy, they were oppressed by the Canaanite nations. So you can't blame it on libertarianism. Seventhly, it's damaged by sinful leaders. And we're going to see this not only in David, who sinned, Solomon, that we just concluded, but we're going to see it especially by the kings that followed Solomon. So it's not limited by government per se, but because of sin and the sin of leaders. Ultimately, number eight, and this completes your foundation for liberty, liberty will be ultimately restored by Messiah, not by man, not by government. So when will liberty be restored ultimately? In the kingdom, not till the second coming. So we're going to be plagued with Obamas. We're going to be plagued with Putins and other sinful leaders until Messiah returns. Let's conclude by looking at another implication. The kingdom is a preview of the messianic and ultimate kingdom. And I will add that the kingdom that I just mentioned, as I've already said, That is the kingdom that Jesus offered Israel when he came. So when the amillennialist speaks of the church as the kingdom, I think it's a misguided idea, because it doesn't fit what God set as the pattern during the kingdom age. So I gave you the foundation for the kingdom, so I'm going to repeat all of those elements of the kingdom here that are the foundation stones but now relate them in terms of the millennium on this slide. See the difference there? The other slide said kingdom-foundation. That's the Old Testament. It's the foundation. This slide is the kingdom, but it's referring to the millennial kingdom. And it's going to have all of those elements. Number one, it'll have a relationship to the creation mandate in that during the millennial kingdom, the curse will be partially lifted. Curse will be partially lifted. A reversal of the fall, to some extent, not entirely. Secondly, that distinct nation will be a regenerated Israel in the land. Israel will be prominent in the millennial kingdom. They will be the head nation. Just as they were the world empire, they were the leading nation of the world, 
under David and Solomon. In the millennial kingdom, a regenerated Israel will be the main nation in the millennium. What's the third one? A godly king. In the millennium, there's going to be a sinless Messiah who will be the king. There will also be a resurrected David that will rule under the sinless Messiah. There will also be you and I, we will rule in resurrection bodies as well. But the Messiah will be the main, will be the king, the godly king. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. Sinless. Fourthly, what? Security and peace. This is the ultimate security and peace. All of the enemies will be subdued. There'll be no enemies. In fact, no unbelievers will enter the kingdom. And as unbelievers are born and raised, Messiah will rule and his rulership will be a righteous rulership. He will deal with sin in the millennial kingdom. But at the beginning, there'll be no unbelievers. Fifthly, it's guaranteed by the Davidic covenant and David will be present. David will be in the millennium. And there's verses that specifically indicate that. The temple presence of God, we will have full worship with another manifestation of God himself. In fact, Messiah will be in the temple. Holy Spirit will display himself in the temple. Seven, great blessing. Greater blessing, millennial blessings. Read Isaiah from about 60 to 65. Tremendous agricultural, economic, in terms of animals, in terms of fertility, longevity of life. Great blessing. Greater blessing than in the Solomonic era. That will be millennial blessing. So these are the aspects. Number eight. Israel will be a missionary nation, and those same passages that speak of the millennium and Israel, Israel will be the leading nation, and the nations will flock to Israel as the nations flock to Israel under Solomon, but even more so. And the word of God will come out of Jerusalem. So we have the foundation for Israel in the Old Testament, and all of the major characteristics will be present in the millennial kingdom. That's the kingdom that Jesus offered. He offered a kingdom where the curse would be partially lifted. He offered a kingdom that would have a renewing of Israel. He came for Israel. He was going to regenerate Israel. He was going to institute the new covenant with Israel. He was going to be the sinless Messiah that would rule. And he would establish, after his death, that kingdom, and he would rule. And this was guaranteed by the Davidic covenant, and there would be a presence of God in the temple, there will be full worship, and he was going to introduce great blessing. That's the kingdom that Jesus offered Israel, and that Israel would be a missionary nation. It was not an amillennial kingdom. It was not a postmillennial kingdom. Linda. So there's a kingdom of his life, a mustard seed, lovely, lovely, all that stuff. Now that, that aspect is a little, that's a little different. That's another issue there. The Matthew 13 parables, that's not the millennial kingdom. Matthew 13 comes after he's rejected. Read chapter 12, where they begin to plot to kill him. And he's going to the cross. There's going to be an interim form of the kingdom that Matthew 13 deals with. But that's not the millennial kingdom. No. 
<laughs> It'll take too long, and we're already over time. Uh, you said that non-believers will not be allowed? Will not enter. They will not enter. So we're still going to have non-believers at that time? No, they'll all be killed at the end of the tribulation. But there's a verse in Isaiah 65, verse 20, that speaks of children being born during the millennial kingdom, growing up, and there's some other things that it talks about, and it talks about even death in the kingdom. There'll be mortal people that'll have normal children like they do today, but they'll be in an ideal with the curse partially lifted. Those individuals, this is a theological conclusion, will have to believe in Messiah, just like we do. And there'll be enough of them that do not, that there's a rebellion at the end of the thousand years. That's Revelation 20. And the last item on your outline sheet there is an apologetic and the apologetic area that I chose to deal with is this whole area of wisdom, biblical wisdom. So, biblical wisdom basically is available to all, all that will avail themselves of biblical wisdom. And the reason uh, it's good to defend biblical wisdom is because there is a wisdom that is of the world that is different, and it's good to be aware of that distinction, and that's what we want to kind of focus in on. The Bible describes the wisdom of the world as actually foolishness, because it doesn't have a basis in ultimate reality like biblical wisdom does. So biblical wisdom is very important. And, like I said, it's available to all people. You don't even have to be a, be a believer to avail yourself of wisdom, and there are some people that are not believers that in some way tap in to what God has provided. And there's even examples in the Bible where Israel availed themselves of wisdom outside of Israel. When they built the temple, for example, they utilized the skill of people that weren't Israelis, that and the essence of the word wisdom, the Hebrew word is hakmah, and what it really means is skill. That's the meaning of the word wisdom, is skill. And if you study the word in the Old Testament, particularly the word hakmah, you'll find out it can have a variety of meanings in terms of what it's related to. In Exodus, God instructed uh, Moses to gather people that had hakmah to build a tabernacle. And when he listed the people that were needed, it involved people that had uh, skill in metalwork. It had skill in weaving, carpentry, all of these different areas. So when the Bible speaks of wisdom, it's not just talking about intellectual thoughts and ideas, but it talks about skills that are more broad-based. It can include music. In other words, a skill to be able to produce pleasing, harmonious, and even godly music. So God built biblical wisdom and made it available to all people. Now the Bible also tells us that the beginning of wisdom is a fear of God. So if you really want to get into the more, I guess, spiritual aspects of wisdom... It all obviously begins with, with God himself. So, real quickly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. The wisdom that God has available is available for all life, just as the word uh, indicates. It can 
In fact, in some contexts in the Old Testament, it speaks of wisdom in dealing with foreign nations, so it can involve political things as well. Skill. Now, when we generally think of wisdom, we think of it more in terms of the ability to handle knowledge and information, and that's a skill as well. But even it is very practical in in that uh, when we speak in this area of wisdom that's more intellectual, it's more the skill of living life is the idea there. The skill to be able to make decisions, wise decisions. Decisions that are productive, that are beneficial to yourself and to those around. So it's available for all of areas of life. Skill in producing products, skill in handling different situations, skill in making decisions. So it's a very broad-based idea, and I've already said it's available for all people if they will avail themselves of wisdom. And wisdom produces blessings. God desires to use wisdom in people's lives to bring blessing to them. And again, the illustration of Israel and in the building of the temple, the temple was the focus of all of Israel's worship, which was the center of all of Israeli life altogether and the relationship to God. So in that relationship to God, people are blessed. So it involved the gathering together of all the wisdom areas to build the tabernacle and now in expressing a worshipful atmosphere where people can be blessed. So wisdom produces blessing, biblical wisdom. There's some characteristics of wisdom that we can talk about. And these also distinguish wisdom that is biblical as opposed to, say, worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is primarily philosophical, primarily intellectual. It's primarily in the intellect. But biblical wisdom has this practical element to it. It's practical advice. That's why it is applicable in lots of areas of life. Practical areas. So all of the Proverbs, for example, are geared towards practical advice. It's one of the main characteristics of wisdom. And by the way, in the Bible, we have what we classify as wisdom literature, where there are five books that are devoted to expressing wisdom. And from most of those books, we we gather practical advice. So they're practical in nature. That distinguishes them from being more philosophical as other cultures would develop their wisdom, and even our culture today. This is a very important characteristic, the second one. They are general truths. General truths. And what I mean by that is these are not absolutes in the way that other principles of Scripture, we describe them as absolutes. But, for example, the Proverbs, in fact, there are some Proverbs that you might even say are almost contradictory to one another. Like one in the same chapter, I don't remember where it's at, but it says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And in the same context, it says, answer a fool, and then I can't remember how it follows, in order that you may steer him in the right direction. So there are circumstances where you answer a fool. There are other circumstances where you don't answer a fool. So they're general truths. 
They're not promises. They're not absolutes. Now, they can be absolutes if you can find a corresponding absolute truth that captures the essence of that proverb. Does that make sense? But in themselves, by themselves, they're not absolutes. And probably the clearest example that I like to use when it speaks of raise up a child in the way that he will go, and when he is older, what? He will not depart from it. Well, do you know any Christian parents that have done everything? You know, they've tried to teach their children scripture, and they've taken them to church, and they've tried to create an environment, and they've been open and honest and loving, and they've done all the right things, and sometimes their children do not follow. In fact, a friend that I know, you know, they homeschooled, you know, they did all this stuff, they protected their kids, they exposed them to things that were biblical, and and uh, one of them's in prison and will probably never get out. Well, the point I'm making here, that is not a promise. And if you take it as promise, in fact, a lot of parents feel a lot of guilt because, well, where did I go wrong? Well, maybe you didn't. I mean, sure, you made mistakes, but that did not cause that child to... That child has his own will, his own desires, his own sin that he needs to deal with, and not every child responds rightly to the proper environment that God has given them. So these are general truths, not absolutes. You might even look at them statistically. In other words, the statistics are in favor of, if you do such and such, you can expect such and such outcome. Another proverb is, if you live a godly life, you'll live long. I can't remember how it's exactly phrased, but that's the essence of the proverb. A godly life produces long life. And in the same proverb, the contrast is the the foolish or the ungodly die young. Uh, That's not exactly the proverb, but that's the essence of it. Those are examples of general truths. Well, I know a lot of old people that are very wicked and evil. And there's some godly people that have died young. Recently, you know, Glenn Riddle, relatively young, and, you know, point being, these are general truths that, in general, if you follow this advice, you can expect this outcome. Does that make sense? So they're not absolutes, they're general truths that, when followed, you can anticipate and predict a predictable outcome. But there's exceptions, and there's things that sometimes happen that don't follow as the proverb might indicate. So keep that in mind. And that is a characteristic of uh, not only the proverbs, but wisdom literature in general. What are the five? You name them. What are the five? What's the first one? Wisdom books. Proverbs, proverbs obviously. Psalms. Psalms. Song of Solomon. Two more. Ecclesiastes. And what's the, the other one? Actually, the first one, Job. Those are the five that are classified as wisdom literature. Now, wisdom literature is a subset of poetic literature. So all wisdom literature is also poetic, but not all poetic is necessarily wisdom literature. The third characteristic is biblical wisdom or Godly wisdom has a moral aspect. It always has a moral aspect. That's why the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, the moral aspect. 
So it's tied to spirituality. It's, it's tied to other biblical truths. And those are your main characteristics of biblical wisdom. And each of these distinguishes biblical wisdom from human wisdom. Human wisdom tends to be philosophical. Human wisdom can be reliable, but not necessarily. And it generally excludes the moral aspect. Who wants to close for us?